includes commerce. And it is nothing against the master mariner if the birthplace mentioned on his certificate be Nova Scotia. I was born in a cold spot, on coldest North Mountain, on a cold February 20th, though I am a citizen of the United States. A naturalized Yankee, if it may be said that Nova Scotians are not Yankees in the truest sense of the word. On both sides, my family were sailors. And if any slocum should be found not seafaring, he will show at least an inclination to whittle models of boats and contemplate voyages. My father was the sort of man who, if wrecked on a desolate island, would find his way home if he had a jackknife and could find a tree. He was a good judge of a boat, but the old clay farm which some calamity made his was an anchor to him. He wasn't afraid of a capful of wind, and he never took a back seat at a camp meeting or good old-fashioned revival. As for myself, the wonderful sea charmed me from the first. At the age of eight, I had already been afloat along with other boys on the bay, with chances greatly in favor of being drowned. When a lad, I filled the important post of cook on a fishing schooner. But I wasn't long in the galley, for the crew mutinied at the appearance of my first duff, and chucked me out before I had a chance to shine as a culinary artist. The next step toward the goal of happiness found me before the mast, in a full-rigged ship bound on a foreign voyage. Thus I came over the bows, and not in through the cabin windows, to the command of a ship. My best command was that of the magnificent ship Northern Light, of which I was part owner. I had a right to be proud of her, for at that time, in the eighties, she was the finest American sailing vessel afloat. Afterward, I owned and sailed the Equidneck, a little bark which of all man's handiwork seemed to me the nearest to perfection of beauty, and which in speed, when the wind blew, asked no favors of steamers. I had been nearly twenty years a shipmaster when I quit her deck on the coast of Brazil, where she was wrecked. My home voyage to New York with my family was made in the canoe Liberdad, without accident. My voyages were all foreign. I sailed as freighter and trader principally to China, Australia, and Japan, and among the Spice Islands. Mine was not the sort of life to make one long to coil up one's ropes on land, the customs and ways of which I had finally almost forgotten. And so when times for freighters got bad, as at last they did, and I tried to quit the sea, what was there for an old sailor to do? I was born in the breezes and I had studied the sea as perhaps few men have studied it, neglecting all else. Next in attractiveness after seafaring came shipbuilding. I longed to be master in both professions, and in a small way, in time, I accomplished my desire. From the decks of stout ships in the worst gales I had made calculations as to the size and sort of ship safest for all weather and all seas. Thus the voyage which I am now to narrate was a natural outcome, not only of my love of adventure, but of my lifelong experience. One midwinter day in 1892, in Boston, where I had been cast up from the old ocean, so to speak, a year or two before, I was cogitating whether I should apply for a command, and again eat my bread and butter on the sea, or go to work at the shipyard, when I met an old acquaintance, a whaling captain, who said, Come to Fairhaven, and I'll give you a ship. But, he added, she wants some repairs. 
The captain's terms, when fully explained, were more than satisfactory to me. They included all the assistance I would require to fit the craft for sea. I was only too glad to accept, for I had already found that I could not obtain work in the shipyard without first paying fifty dollars to a society, and as for a ship to command, there were not enough ships to go round. Nearly all our tall vessels had been cut down for coal barges, and were being ignominiously towed by the nose from port to port, while many worthy captains addressed themselves to Sailor's Snug Harbor. The next day I landed at Fairhaven, opposite New Bedford, and found that my friend had something of a joke on me. For seven years the joke had been on him. The ship proved to be a very antiquated sloop called the Spray, which the neighbors declared had been built in the year one. She was affectionately propped up in a field some distance from salt water and was covered with canvas. The people of Fairhaven, I hardly need say, are thrifty and observant. For seven years they had asked, I wonder what Captain Eben Pierce is going to do with the old spray. The day I appeared, there was a buzz at the gossip exchange. At last someone had come and was actually at work on the old spray. Breaking her up, I suppose. No, going to rebuild her. Great was the amazement. Will it pay? was the question, which for a year or more I answered by declaring that I would make it pay. My axe felled a stout oak tree nearby for a keel, and Farmer Howard, for a small sum of money, hauled in this and enough timbers for the frame of the new vessel. I rigged a steam box and a pot for a boiler. The timbers for ribs, being straight saplings, were dressed and steamed till supple, and then bent over a log where they were secured till set. Something tangible appeared every day to show for my labor, and the neighbors made the work sociable. It was a great day in the spray shipyard when the new stem was set up and fastened to the new keel. Whaling captains came from far to survey it. With one voice they pronounced it A-1, and in their opinion, fit to smash ice. The oldest captain shook my hand warmly when the breast hooks were put in, declaring that he could see no reason why the spray should not cut in bowhead yet off the coast of Greenland. The much-esteemed stem piece was from the butt of the smartest kind of a pasture oak. It afterward split a coral patch in two at the Keeling Islands, and didn't receive a blemish. Better timber for a ship than pasture white oak never grew. The breast hooks, as well as all the ribs, were of this wood and were steamed and bent into shape as required. It was hard upon March when I began work in earnest. The weather was cold. Still, there were plenty of inspectors to back me with advice. When a whaling captain hove in sight, I just rested on my ads a while and gammed with him. New Bedford, the home of whaling captains, is connected with Fairhaven by a bridge, and the walking is good. They never worked along up to the shipyard too often for me, it was the charming tales about Arctic whaling that inspired me to put a double set of breast hooks in the spray, that she might shunt ice. The seasons came quickly while I worked. Hardly were the ribs of the sloop up before apple trees were in bloom. Then the daisies and the cherries came soon after. Close by the place where the old spray had now dissolved rested the ashes of John Cook, a revered pilgrim father. So the new spray rose from hallowed ground. From the deck of the new craft I could put out my hand and pick cherries that grew over the little grave.
The planks for the new vessel, which I soon came to put on, were of Georgia pine, an inch and a half thick. The operation of putting them on was tedious, but when on the caulking was easy. The outward edges stood slightly open to receive the caulking, but the inner edges were so close that I couldn't see daylight between them. All the butts were fashioned by through bolts, with screw nuts tightening them to the timbers so that there would be no complaint from them. Many bolts with screw nuts were used in other parts of the construction, in all about a thousand. It was my purpose to make my vessel stout and strong. Now, it is a law in Lloyd's that the Jane repaired all out of the old until she is entirely new is still the Jane. The spray changed her being so gradually that it was hard to say at what point the old died or the new took birth, and it was no matter. The bulwarks I built up of white oak stanchions fourteen inches high, and covered with seven-eighth-inch white pine. These stanchions mortised through a two-inch covering board I caulked with thin cedar wedges. They have remained perfectly tight ever since. The deck I made of one-and-a-half-inch by three-inch white pine spiked to beams six by six inches of yellow or Georgia pine placed three feet apart. The deck enclosures were one over the aperture of the main hatch, six feet by six, for a cooking galley, and a trunk farther aft, about ten feet by twelve, for a cabin. Both of these rose about three feet above the deck, and were sunk sufficiently into the hold to afford headroom. In the spaces along the sides of the cabin under the deck I arranged a berth to sleep in, and shelves for small storage, not forgetting a place for the medicine chest. In the midship hold, that is, the space between cabin and galley under the deck, was room for provision of water, salt beef, etc., ample for many months. The hull of my vessel, being now put together as strongly as wood and iron could make her, and the various rooms partitioned off, I set about caulking ship. Grave fears were entertained by some that at this point I should fail. I myself gave some thought to the advisability of a professional caulker. The very first blow I struck on the cotton with the caulking iron, which I thought was right, many others thought wrong. "'It'll crawl!' cried a man from Marion, passing with a basket of clams on his back. "'It'll crawl!' cried another from West Island, when he saw me driving cotton into the seams. Bruno simply wagged his tail. Even Mr. Ben Jay, a noted authority on whaling ships, whose mind, however, was said to totter, asked rather confidentially if I did not think it would crawl. "'How fast will it crawl?' cried my old captain friend, who had been towed by many a lively sperm whale. "'Tell us how fast,' cried he, "'that we may get into port in time.' However, I drove a thread of oakum on top of the cotton, as from the first I had intended to do and Bruno again wagged his tail. The cotton never crawled. When the caulking was finished, two coats of copper paint were slapped on the bottom, two of white lead on the top sides and bulwarks. The rudder was then shipped and painted, and on the following day the spray was launched. As she rode at her ancient rust-eaten anchor, she sat on the water like a swan. The spray's dimensions were, when finished, thirty-six feet nine inches long overall, fourteen feet two inches wide, and four feet two inches deep in the hold, her tonnage being nine tons net and twelve and seventy-one hundredths tons gross. 
Then the mast, a smart New Hampshire spruce, was fitted, and likewise all the small appurtenances necessary for a short cruise. Sails were bent, and away she flew with my friend Captain Pierce and me across Buzzard's Bay on a trial trip. All right. The only thing that now worried my friends along the beach was, will she pay? The cost of my new vessel was $553.62 for materials and 13 months of my own labor. I was several months more than that at Fairhaven, for I got work now and then on an occasional whale ship fitting farther down the harbor, and that kept me the overtime. Chapter 2 Failure as a Fisherman A Voyage Around the World Projected From Boston to Gloucester Fitting out for the ocean voyage Half of a dory for a ship's boat The run from Gloucester to Nova Scotia a shaking up in home waters, among old friends. I spent a season in my new craft fishing on the coast, only to find that I had not the cunning properly to bait a hook. But at last the time arrived to weigh anchor and get to sea in earnest. I had resolved on a voyage around the world, and as the wind on the morning of April 24, 1895, was fair, at noon I weighed anchor, set sail, and filled away from Boston, where the spray had been moored snugly all winter. The twelve o'clock whistles were blowing just as the sloop shot ahead under full sail. A short board was made up the harbor on the port tack, then coming about she stood seaward, with her boom well off to port, and swung past the ferries with lively heels. A photographer on the outer pier at East Boston got a picture of her as she swept by, her flag at the peak throwing its folds clear. A thrilling pulse beat high in me. My step was light on deck in the crisp air. I felt that there could be no turning back, and that I was engaging in an adventure the meaning of which I thoroughly understood. I had taken little advice from anyone, for I had a right to my own opinions in matters pertaining to the sea. That the best of sailors might do worse than even I alone was borne in upon me not a league from Boston docks, where a great steamship, fully manned, officered, and piloted, lay stranded and broken. This was the Venetian. She was broken completely in two over a ledge. So in the first hour of my lone voyage I had proof that the spray could at least do better than this full-handed steamship, for I was already farther on my voyage than she. Take warning, spray, and have a care, I uttered aloud to my bark, passing ferry-like silently down the